right, we are going to finish up the book of John today, chapter 21, so you guys will be experts now. So after you've had your friends read the Gospel of John, you can answer all their questions. It's awesome. Amen? All right, are you excited just to be done, or Tony's finally going to talk about something else? All right, I'm excited about this last chapter. I think there's good stuff in there. So we're going to jump right in, uh, but I need to do some review. Um, in order to understand John 21, which occurs, of course, right after the resurrection, um, we have to go back to the Last Supper and the first prophecy uh, that Jesus gives Peter in there about, about stumbling and all the apostles. And because understanding that, they're tied together. Understanding that will help us to understand what's going on in the Gospel of John. So we'll spend a fair bit of time there. Um, be aware, uh, this, John 21 is a chapter where uh, lots of people like to speculate because some things aren't definitive or clear. And I'll be, you know, speculating right along with the best of them. But I'll try to make clear when we're speculating and when the Bible's clear. So, you know, feel free to come up with your own speculations. Uh, but I'll share mine with you because I get to. Right? Okay. Well, let's jump in. Now, I want to review, going all the way back to John 13. And again, uh, getting a picture of this. John 13 is the Last Supper. Uh, John 14 through 17 is only in John, it's not in the other Gospels, is uh, Jesus uh, giving them amazing instruction before he goes to the cross, and then we have the cross, the resurrection. And John 21, which is also not in the other Gospels, which is, uh, as I'm going to talk about in a minute, about restoration. So in John 13, uh, verse 34, Jesus springs this on them. He says, guys, I'm giving you a new commandment. The old commandment that you had since Moses was to love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so I got to love Gary like I love Tony. Um, and now, he says, this new commandment is love as I have loved. Now, I have to love Gary like Jesus loves Gary. This is an upgrade. Understand? And so he's, he's upgraded the command to love. Love as I have loved you. And what's interesting is this is connected just four verses later to the prophecy about Peter's denial. What's love got to do with that, right? So uh, Jesus says a new commandment, and in just, again, reviewing, because we already went through John 13, uh, Peter says, Jesus, where are you going? He goes, where I'm going, you can't go. And he goes, I want to go. I'm willing to die with you. And Jesus says, yeah, not so much. In fact... Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously. In fact, you're going to deny me three times. So the prophecy is right in there with Jesus' command to love. I want you to see that all this ties together in that overarching theme of learning to love like Jesus. Peter basically is claiming that he already loves Jesus enough to die with him. And Jesus is saying, yeah, no, not yet. But there'll be good news later, all right? And so here's what I told you back then when we were going through chapter 13 uh, that I want to remind you of now because, again, these, these chapters are linked. They go together, and, and we're finishing the lesson. This really, John 21, 
is the completion of the lesson Jesus started in John 13, where he said, um, love as I have loved you. Uh, the, the two things I, I taught you there that I want you to remember is, one, learning to love is a prerequisite to a laid down life. Now, we all know we're supposed to lay down our lives for Jesus. We're supposed to take up our cross and follow him, die to ourselves, all that stuff. Jesus says in John 15 that um, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his brother. So he ties laying down life to a degree of love. In fact, he calls it the greatest degree of love. And so, in other words, if we want to have a laid down life, we have to have a high degree of love. There connected. Learning to love is a prerequisite to a laid down life. You don't just wake up and go, well, Jesus said, lay down my life. Okay, I'm going to do it. Uh, there needs to be love involved. It, it, in the simplest terms, it's way easier for you to lay down your life for someone you love than for someone who annoys you, right? Maybe you've experienced this? Okay. The second thing is this. Remember I told you we learn to love by experiencing his love. Very simple. 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. He started the whole thing. And so we really don't know how to love apart from Jesus showing us. We learn to love by experiencing his love. So this is probably the most important thing I'm going to say. And I'm reiterating this from when we learned this in John 13. Uh, but we have to learn to love. We don't start out. We don't just pick up John, read John 13, as the Father has loved me, I've loved you, uh, now you love others as I've loved you, and we go, okay, I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to go love people like Jesus. It doesn't happen that way, does it? Anybody ever just tried to decide to love people like that, especially when they're fighting against you, sort of, being annoying? And so love has to be learned. That's what I want you to see. And it has to be learned in this order. It starts with a revelation of his love for us. We have to get a revelation of how much the Father loves the Son, how much the Son loves the Father, and how much the Father and the Son love us. And then we respond to that love based on that revelation. Oh, Jesus loves me. I'm going to love him back. And it's out of that that we begin to learn how to love and to express love to others. Now, this doesn't just happen once. We repeat this as necessary for our entire lives. We're learning on a deeper level how Jesus loves us. And so on a deeper level, we respond. It enables us on a deeper level to express his love in the earth. And at some point, you get deep enough to where uh, you're like the apostles loving people who are killing you, literally, while they're stoning you, going, God, forgive me. They don't know what they're doing. Now, you got to kind of work up to that. You understand what I'm saying? And so what I want you to see is if we believe that, well, Jesus commanded me to love like he loves, he put his Holy Spirit in me, I guess I can do that, we will try and skip to the expressing part. And a lot of Christians don't understand why they have trouble expressing Christ's love is because they haven't spent time getting a revelation of his love for us. Worship is a real good place to do that, right? And then expressing uh, or responding to that love by expressing it back. So all that time, sitting at home, having your quiet time, experiencing the presence of God, having him love you and you love him back, that's all learning to love. That's all building towards your ability to express his love in the earth. It doesn't happen overnight. 
Now, this seems pretty straightforward, but it's easy to forget this. It's easy to see love as a commandment, not as something we learn experientially from following Jesus. Amen? So, if you've just been trying to love like Jesus loves and failing utterly, uh, I understand. I've done that. still do that. Uh, but the remedy is not to try harder. The remedy is to spend more time getting a revelation of his love for you and responding to that. And then the expression will come. Amen? So that's what we learned. So before we look at John 21, um, we'll get so much more out of it. It actually gets really easy. If we look at uh, his, uh, Peter's denial prophecy first. And uh, it's pretty quick in John 13. We're going to look at it in Matthew and in Luke because there's a little bit more there. We're going to break these down. Once we've done that, it should be glaring, glaringly obvious what's going on in John 21, okay? So Matthew 26, verse 31 through 35, it's the same thing. It's the, both of these are coming out of the Last Supper, all right? So put yourself back there at the Last Supper. And then Jesus says to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. How many of the apostles are going to stumble? All of them. Any exceptions? No. It's Peter alone. No. Well, yes and no. Because he sets himself apart here in a minute. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. I'll talk about this in a minute. Remember, I talked last in chapter 20 about this Galilee meeting, this really important meeting. Everybody keeps talking about this meeting in Galilee. You've got to show up for this meeting. We'll talk about that. Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. You understand what Peter's saying? Jesus, I totally get how these other knuckleheads will stumble, but I won't. I got this thing. I am, I am going with you even to death. I get that these guys aren't where I'm at. It's okay. I'll be an example to them in my not stumbling. Right? So we get where Peter is. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, now catch this. This is Jesus talking. Jesus, they've been walking with Jesus for three years. He's got a pretty good track record of what he says happens, right? So Jesus says to you, you're going to stumble. And Peter's first response is, not going to happen. Jesus, you're wrong on this one. You've been really good up till now. But no, not going to happen. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. You understand what's going on here? We got to kind of put ourselves in this. Jesus at the Last Supper is going, yeah, you're, you're going to deny me tonight. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter goes, I am not Jesus. Stop it. Right? To top it off, the other disciples say, this is very big, and so said all the disciples. Yeah, what Peter said, so say we all. We will not deny you, even though you just promised us we would. Right? So, Let's see what we can learn from this. First, all of the disciples are pretty confident, aren't they? They're very confident. Verse 35, so say all the disciples. Peter, verse 33, is even more confident. These guys might, but certainly not me. 
I am double extra special confident above these guys' confidence, right? And third, verse 31, all will stumble. John, he tells them again in John 16, 32, all of you will stumble. What happens? All of them stumble, just like Jesus said, right? So, uh, how dumb would you feel after that conversation a few days later talking with Jesus, right? So, we've got to put ourselves in this position here because this is what John 21 is about. It's following up on this evening. So, they all said, no, we're going to die with you, and they all stumbled. The second thing we see here is this meeting in Galilee. Now, let me review this. We talked about this in chapter 20 because they keep talking about this Galilee meeting. This is a very important meeting. It's on all their calendars. It's not a Zoom meeting. You got to show up. You got to be there. Jesus is saying to them, uh, we're going to have a meeting in Galilee after all this is done, and we're going to review this. And we see this uh, best in Matthew. In Matthew 28, verse 7, remember uh, the angel uh, meets the ladies who've gone to the tomb, and they've seen that Jesus is risen. And the angel says to them, go tell the disciples two things, that Jesus is risen and that he will meet you in Galilee. So he reminds them of the Galilee meeting. What I love, in, in I do Luke 16, 7 in here, this is great. The angel says, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is risen and will meet you in Galilee. For God's sake, make sure Peter's there, right? And so that's going on. And then just three verses later, in Matthew 28, 10, the ladies run into Jesus. And Jesus says, Go tell the disciples that I have risen and that I will meet them in Galilee. So there's this Galilee meeting. The angel reminds them about it. Jesus reminds them about it. Very important meeting. And, and then we read then going on Matthew 28, 16, we read that all 11 disciples went to Galilee. So we know that they were all there in Galilee. Now, uh, from there, in Matthew, you only have like two, three verses left, and it's the Great Commission. So all we get out of Matthew is they went to Galilee, and they received the Great Commission, and they turned the world upside down, right? But there's more. And so we want to look at that, and that's what we're going to get out of John chapter 21. Now, here's what I want you to see, though. And we saw this in John chapter 20. It wasn't like Galilee was the first time that they were going to see Jesus, was it? Remember, he already appeared to them that evening. We read in John 20 that that evening, as they were gathered together, he came into the room and appeared to them. And not only did he appear to them, uh, that is in uh, verse 19, in verse 21, he sent them. He said, as the Father sent me in the exact same way, I send you. That's pretty significant, isn't it? And then the second thing he did in verse 22, it says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And now we know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was going to occur at the day of Pentecost. And so I want to ask this question just to get you thinking. He's already appeared to them the day he rose. He's told them he sent them and he's breathed on them and given them the Holy Spirit, told them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. What else is there that can be so important that they have to have this special meeting in Galilee? And I submit to you, it is this. What's left is he needs to restore their confidence and their vision. 
He's sent them. He's equipped them with the Holy Spirit. But they're still in that state of, we thought we had this thing together, and we clearly didn't. And he needs them to be confident and to be pursuing the vision. So that's what's going to happen in chapter 21. He's going to restore their confidence and their vision. Now, before we go to that, let's look in Luke 22 at, again, this exact same scenario, this, this prophecy that Peter's going to uh, fall, okay, or stumble. Um, and uh, a little bit of different things will come out here, and we want to be really prepared when we go to John 21. So, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. How many of you, this verse makes you nervous? I, personally, have made it clear to God more than once, if Satan ever asked to sift me, you say no. <laughs> but I'm not sure it works that way. We'll talk about that in a minute. Anyway. At least he has to ask. I like that, right? He can't just come up and sift. He has to get permission. So Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, uh, strengthen your brethren. Um, and so we're going to talk about all that in a minute. And I love Peter's response. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In other words, I appreciate you praying for me, Jesus, but I've got this, right? I'm really confident I've got this, uh, but, you know, wasted prayers, but it's okay, right? So I, I really want you to get the degree of confidence Peter's walking in at this point. And so uh, then, of course, uh, Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, uh, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me deny three times that you even know me. Because Peter had said to him, I think I don't think I read this, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And so we put all that together uh, with the things we saw before. Now, here's what I want you to see. Again, this is the Last Supper. If you go to Luke and you look at this, you know what is happening right before this passage that it comes out of? The disciples are having a dispute, argument, whatever you want to call it, over who would be greatest. Isn't that interesting? They're having a dispute over who would be greatest. And it's in this context that Jesus says, uh, by the way, you're going to get sifted. And, and Peter's response is, no, no, no. I'm great. I'm clearly the greatest. I, I will be an example to the others. They may stumble, but I'll be an example of courage for them, Jesus. You can count on me. I will lead the way because I got leadership going on. Amen? You guys seeing this? Am I, am I being too rough on Peter? Okay. So the Last Supper dispute is over who would be greatest. And Peter is confident that he will lead them in courage. Jesus is saying this thing because... They're disputing over who would be greatest. They've just missed something important. I'll talk about that in a minute. So what I want you to see here is that it may be the case that Peter and the other disciples have a self-confidence issue. Think? Maybe they have a self-confidence issue. Am I going too far? No? Okay. Well, here's what I want you to think about. Is the self-confidence issue 
the thing that gives Satan the opportunity to sift them. In other words, does Satan just come along and go, I'd like to sift Gary, and uh, God goes, sure or no? Or does Satan come along and go, hey, I've noticed a self-confidence issue in Peter and in the other disciples. And that's kind of in agreement with my side of the ledger, you know, the dark side. And I'd like to see if I can inflame that. I'd like to sift them and see if that thing's real. You understand what I'm saying? So as much as I would like to go, God, if Satan sifts me or asks to sift me, say no, what if it doesn't work like that? What if my issues and your issues are the opportunities for him to sift us? You follow me? What if what Jesus is really saying is, Peter, you got a self-confidence problem, and because of that, Satan is asked to challenge you on it, and you're going to fail, but when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. I'm just speculating here, right? Could be. Now, what I also find interesting is right before, or somewhere in here, in the whole Last Supper dispute over who would be greatest or whatever, Jesus gets up, wraps a towel around himself, and starts to wash the apostles' feet. We all remember this, right? We talked about this before when we went through this in John. The whole point of this was he says something like this. Hey, the, those, the rulers, uh, the, the secular rulers, you know, they like to lord it over one another, and they like to compete for position and compare themselves and that kind of thing. He goes, not so you. He goes, I'm doing this as an example that because I'm going to give you authority and what I want you to learn is that in my kingdom, authority is given to serve, not to lord over. Right? So that was the whole point. That was the whole lesson of the foot washing. I'm going to give you authority, but you got to understand, I'm setting an example for you here. I'm, I'm, I'm Lord. You call me Lord, and you rightly say so. So look at what I'm doing. I'm washing your feet. Remember, this is the lowest job. This was the, the least servant in the house did this job. This was the lowest thing on the totem pole that Jesus could do, right? And so he's trying to give them an example so that they learn something. I don't think they got it. I think what they're basically doing is going in their self-confidence. Yeah, 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 Jesus, we got it. We need to do a foot washing service at least once every five or six weeks. We'll do some service projects. We'll have the deacons handle it. It'll happen. Don't worry. When I'm in charge... We'll have foot washings and the deacons will have service projects. And that's not really what Jesus is after, is it? He's after a heart change. He's after them learning that authority is about service. So here's what I want you to see. I believe that the foot washing, the whole authority to serve thing, was uh, part one of a lesson. I believe that the stumble was a necessary continuation of the same lesson. And that's why these chapters are tied together. That uh, he's telling them you're going to stumble because this is part two of the humility lesson that I tried to teach you in the foot washing part and you didn't get. Let me put it this way. The foot washing revealed to, to the apostles Jesus' heart, didn't it, of service. But the stumble revealed to the disciples their own hearts, didn't it? See, it's one thing to see Jesus' heart. 
It's another to see our own because they were very self-confident that they got what Jesus was saying and they were going to die with him and they could handle it. And it's important that we do both. And not just in humility and everything, that we see Jesus' heart, but that we also see our own heart because there's often, in fact, almost always a vast difference, isn't there? And this is not to make us feel bad. This is to make us lean. This is to cure self-confidence. This is to make us go, oh, I'm supposed to love people like Jesus loves people? I see Jesus' heart. That's incredible. Okay, I'm supposed to do that? And I look at my heart and I go, that's not in there. I can't do that. But I can lean on him in humility. And I, and I did learn in John 15 that without him I can do nothing, right? And so I'm telling you guys, this is the same lesson that he's trying to teach them with the foot washing. The stumble was necessary because they needed to not just see Jesus' heart. They needed to see their hearts because they were self-confident and they weren't leaning on him to do it. They thought they would do it for him. You understand what I'm saying? Good lesson here. Okay, so the last thing he says is, when you have returned to me, uh, strengthen the brethren. Why did Jesus tell Peter he was going to need to strengthen the brethren? How many of them stumbled? All of them. This wasn't just Peter's failure. This was a complete, whole 100% disciples of Jesus failure, wasn't it? They all said, we won't do it, and they all did it, right? And so Jesus is telling Peter, when you've returned to me, strengthen the brethren because they will all have failed just like you. You just got the real specific prophecy because you were the most vocal one. And you're, and you're going to, you know, do it three times. They're just going to run away. You're going to actually deny me three times. But they're all having the same failure. And so what's going on here is, and this is good. hope you catch this. Peter is going, hey, Jesus, they might fail you, but I won't fail you. I'm going to lead and encourage and be an example to the other disciples. And Jesus prophesies to him and says, hey, when you've returned to me, would you strengthen the other disciples? Would you do me a favor? Since the leading and encouraged thing isn't going to work, would you lead in humility? Would you at that point take up your leadership? But I'm going to need you to lead in humility. I'm going to need you to own your failure and to help the other disciples own theirs. Still your leadership gifting, Peter, but I'm going to need you to lean on me. I'm going to need you to lead them in leaning on me, not in being confident and courageous. You with me? You see how this all ties together? It's all the same lesson. So, Peter's going to learn to lean. He's going to learn to lead in humility. So let's go now to John chapter 21, finally. Uh, having all this background, though, it should just leap out at us what's going on here. Now, in John chapter 1, the entire thing happens in Galilee. So this is that meeting that we've been anticipating so long. Um, and uh, again, the whole purpose of it is they're, he's, Jesus is restoring the disciples' confidence and vision. But here's the caveat. They had confidence and vision in themselves. He is restoring confidence and vision in him. 
big difference. You get it? Their confidence is not in themselves anymore. They, they had a supreme failure. And their vision is going to be in him now, not in themselves. And if you don't think they had vision in themselves, I take you back to the argument. Who will be greatest among you? Who gets the chair? Hey, Jesus, I noticed there's some good office space in the temple. When you're the Messiah in the temple, can I have that corner one where the windows are overlooking, you know, that pool? They were picking out office space. Jesus was fixing to be Messiah in their mind. Who's going to be? Remember uh, James and John's mom? Can my kids sit at your left and right hand? You think they didn't know what was going on? Everybody was looking for their position. Who's, who's, who's like Messiah's first assistant? Who's Messiah's second assistant? Right? They had, yep. <laughs> they had visions of their own. He wants to restore to them a confidence in him and a vision in his plan for their lives. So let's look at that. And in, in, I'm not going to read verses 1 through 14. You can read them. I'm just going to summarize. Uh, what we find is that uh, we know all 11 of them are there. It lists a bunch of names, so at least seven of them go fishing. Now, this is one of those places where people like to speculate. Uh, you know, they went back to fishing because they thought they'd failed and they could never be disciples again. Eh, maybe. I don't think so. Maybe they just were going, hey, we're here for this meeting. Jesus isn't here yet. Let's go fishing. It sounds like a guy thing. Uh, I don't know. But they decide to go fishing. And what, but what we do see is that Peter goes, let's go fishing. And, or Peter goes, I'm going fishing. And the other six go, well, we'll go with you. So we see uh, that influence. Again, that leadership that Jesus saw on Peter that he wants him to use, but he wants him to use it uh, for the Lord and leaning on the Lord and leading in humility, not just in how awesome he is and how he's willing to die. So... Uh, this brings up, and I'm just going to make some points here that I find interesting. Uh, Peter had a gift of leadership, I think. I think that's a safe argument. I think uh, he had influence. Uh, I, this makes me think of Romans 11, 29, where it says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable without repentance. So Peter was clearly, if not Balaam, was clearly at least on sabbatical. I'm going fishing. I denied Jesus three times. I'm here for the meeting. But I don't know what's going to happen. He, he might fire me. Uh, so I'm going fishing. And the other disciples go, yeah. Here's what I want you to see. When you have gifting and calling, even when you don't want to use it for Jesus, it tends to come out. And uh, Peter, uh, I, I would tell people this sometimes. A lot of times young people who are doing youth ministry who have leadership gifting uh, you can tell because uh, they're rebels uh, and they don't want anybody to tell them what to do and they're leading people in a bad place. <laughs> and I, I would often tell them, say, God, you understand you have people follow you, right? And yeah, I go, you're a leader, right? And I go, yeah, well, even if, you, even if you go to a bad place, you're still a leader and you're still responsible for where you're taking people. That gift is from God. And usually their eyes get big. And I go, yeah, the gifting and calling are irrevocable. People are going to follow you. You might want to decide where you're going to lead them. <laughs> and so Peter leads them fishing. And again, that's, I don't know, maybe that's for someone in here uh, who's trying to hide from their gifting and their calling. It's going to get out. Uh, it's going to keep happening. Might as well do it with Jesus. Amen? And then 
So they've gone fishing. They've, as you know, the story goes, they've fished all night. They haven't caught anything. It's morning, and uh, they're about 100 yards offshore, and Jesus yells at them, hey, you guys got anything? And they go, nope. And he goes, well, uh, if you'll cast your net over on the right side, and they do, and uh, the net's full, right? So Jesus supernaturally uh, provides a lot of fish, 150-some, I think it's 152. And uh, here's the thing. John recognizes that it's Jesus because they don't recognize who it is. And John recognizes that it's Jesus, immediately turns to Peter and goes, Peter, it's the Lord. Now, I refer you back to what we already talked about in John 20 and this thing going on with Peter and John. Remember, every other gospel goes in chronological order uh, for the resurrection except for John. John starts with there was a race and Peter got a head start and I beat him to the grave. Remember that? So we have this whole competition thing. Let's just, you know, we're humans. Let's be real here. There's something going on with John and Peter in this competition thing, right? And Jesus, I think, is working on curing this. So anyway, we see that here. So John goes, it's Jesus. And Peter does something really interesting. All the other disciples get in a little boat and row to shore 100 yards so they can have breakfast with Jesus. Not Peter. Peter puts on, he'd taken off his outer garment, he puts it on, jumps in the water, and ostensibly swims in to Jesus. Now, I don't know how many of you have gone fishing, but how many of you, this strikes you as odd. How many of you get dressed to jump in? Or add, you know, well, I'm not wearing all my clothes. Let's put all of them on before I jump in the water, right? Now, again, I'm going to speculate here. Feel free to disagree with me. But here's what I think. I think John goes, hey, Peter, that's the Lord. And Peter goes, ah, I'm going to redeem myself. I remember that one time where I, I told Jesus to tell me to come to him, and I walked on water for about two feet. I'm going to walk. I'm putting my robe on. I'm going to perform for Jesus. I'm going to show him my faith. I'm going to, just me. Might not be right, but I, rack in my brain. Why would you get dressed to go overboard? It's the only thing I could come up with. Anyway, maybe you felt like this. Maybe when you failed God, you thought the way back was performing for him. It doesn't really matter. Maybe you tried to perform for him and you sunk and had to swim. Everybody get the point? All right, I'll move on. Okay. So, Anyway, Peter swims in. The others row in. They, Peter, Jesus says, bring me some fish. Peter goes and grabs the net, drags it ashore, and they get some fish, and they have breakfast. Now, they just, it just says they have a meal together, but I want you to catch something here. Have you noticed how common it is for Jesus to do things over a meal? Happens a lot, doesn't it? And I think we need to not miss that. I think we need to see that because something big is going to happen. This is a big meeting. Jesus is going to be restoring their confidence and their vision. And he wants to do it over food, and he's not in a hurry. They're going to have breakfast first. I think we need to see how big a deal it is to Jesus that things are done relationally and in community. Just noting that once again, Jesus decides 
we're going to do this over a meal. Now, thankfully, most churches are really good at eating. So uh, this isn't bad. But we got to remember the community part. The whole point of the Lord's Supper back in the day, remember, was that they did it together, that they recognized one another, that they waited on one another, that they had fellowship. So it's just a little reminder, guys, that Jesus really likes to do these things over a table. Uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of the stuff Jesus wants to do with us is not going to happen here in this room with 150 of us. It's going to happen uh, across a dinner table or across the table at, at a coffee place or something like that. And we, and we need to know that he likes to do that. We need to look for those opportunities, all right? So, anyway, after the meal, it's time now for the important part of the meeting, the restoration. Ready? So let's read this. We're finally going to read something out of John 21, verses 15 through 17. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Those being the ones sitting around. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time. I think the point of three times is pretty obvious here, isn't it? Um, and uh, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, let's get some stuff out of this. First of all, Jesus doesn't just say, do you love me? The first time he says, do you love me more than these? And what I want you to see is he is not encouraging or inviting comparison. Uh, he's been telling them quite the opposite. Quit comparing yourselves with one another. Quit talking about who's going to be greatest. Paul says, if we compare ourselves among ourselves and measure ourselves by ourselves, we are not wise. Uh, some translations say stupid. So that's stupid, right? So he's not inviting comparison. He's addressing the statement Peter made in Matthew 26, 33. All these guys may stumble, but I won't stumble. All these guys uh, don't love you enough, perhaps, to die with you, but I love you enough to die with you. You understand? He's saying, Peter, do you really love me more than these? What's interesting to me is the answer is clearly no. <laughs> clearly no, I don't, because I stumbled right along with him. But he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And so, what I want us to see here is what Jesus is getting at, I think, in this, do you love me more than these, is it's a focus issue. And where I see this, and again, keep in mind uh, John and Peter's ongoing competition and foot race. Uh, let's jump down just for fun to verse 21 and 22, where all this has happened, and they're sitting around after breakfast, after the restoration, and uh, Peter turns around and looks at John, right? Because John's sitting there. John went fishing with him. And uh, Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? What about John? And Jesus said to him, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. He's still doing that. Okay, I get it. But what about John? And, and Jesus' answer is, what's it to you? Follow me. 
you follow me. See, Jesus is trying to cure a focus issue. You can't follow Jesus and be focused on the other guy, or the other pastor, or the other apostle, or the other or the person sitting next to you, right? But God, it sure looks like you've given them more gifting than me. What's it to you? You follow me. Well, God, their stuff looks more cool than me. What's it to you? You follow me. Well, God, you told me I couldn't do this, but you're letting that guy do this. What's it to you? You follow me. You getting this? There's a lot of what's it to you. You follow me. Any of you who've raised kids, you've probably said that. What's that to you? Don't worry about your brother. Do what I told you. Right? There you go. Kids are different. They need different things. Jesus knows the different things we need. He had, we have different callings. And so he's trying to cure them of this competition. He's trying to cure them of the focus. Your focus, Peter, needs to not be on John. John and Peter quit racing. Focus on me. Follow me. How important is that in our calling? And we're all called to ministry. Just because I get paid for it doesn't mean it's more important. In heaven, we all get paid the same. Right? We all get a crown of glory in Jesus. So, uh, in heaven, uh, it's all about following him. Not about, you know, how do you compare to that pastor or that thing or whatever. Which is great because, you know, I really don't want to compete. Right? You with me? And so, he's going, uh, you follow me. Curing a focus issue. Now, of course, he reaffirms his calling three times. And so again in here, we're seeing Jesus restore confidence and vision. He, it, it, obviously, Peter denied him three times. He asked him three times, you love me? Peter says yes three times. Even though the third time I kind of agreed to him because I think he's getting the point at that, that you know, he is addressing his failure. Uh, but I love that he each time says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, which is basically... Go be a pastor, right? Go be a shepherd. Do what I called you to do. He reaffirms his call each time he says he loves him. So three times Peter denied Jesus. Three times Jesus specifically reaffirms his call, confidence and vision. Now, another thing we need to know. You notice that Jesus didn't spend a lot of time talking about the stumble. The only, he only even hinted at it by doing the restoration three times. He never mentioned the stumble. He just moved forward. I love the story of Elijah, uh, where Elijah goes to Mount Carmel. He calls down fire from heaven. Uh, 850 prophets of, um, what's her name, Jezebel, uh, toast. Uh, Jezebel's not happy about it. He runs, he, he outruns a chariot for 20 miles back to Jezreel. Uh, and then Jezebel says, dude, you're dead. And he flees for his life. He runs into the wilderness. God feeds him, lets him rest a little bit. And then God says, what's up? And he says, uh, they're killing the prophets. Uh, they want to take my life. I'm as good as dead. I'm no better than my fathers. Just kill me now. That's basically what he says. Jesus does not even acknowledge. He doesn't go, hey, dude, you're just depressed. You know, this happens after ministry. You know, he doesn't even acknowledge it. He doesn't say anything about his mood. 
Paul does. Paul in Romans calls it the time he interceded against Israel. I'm the only one left, God. No, no, no. There are 7,000 others. He does point that out. There are some other guys. You're not the only one. But what's he do? He gives them three things to do. Go anoint Jehu and Elisha and Azariah, I don't know, the king of Syria. Uh, Go anoint three guys. Here's a task. Isn't that interesting? What's he do with Peter? Three times. Do you love me? All right. Here's a task. Let's get on with it. I love, I love how Jesus keeps wanting to move forward and not linger on our past. Now, he loves to talk about moving forward. All he wanted to talk about with Peter was uh, moving forward. Remember when in Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah is prophesying that they're getting ready to go into captivity, and then he immediately starts talking about, but I know the plans I have for you. It's right after. You're going into captivity, but I have plans to bring you back to prosper and not to harm you, give you a future and a hope. Uh, you're going into timeout, but I really want to talk about when you get out now. Some of you may be having trouble hearing God because you keep wanting to talk about your past and he keeps wanting to talk about your future. Just a thought. Just a speculation. I'm telling you, God wants to get on with stuff. That's what, that's what uh, Paul was talking about in Philippians 3 when he said, hey, I, I have not arrived, but one thing I have figured out, one thing I do, I forget what's behind me, and I keep pressing forward toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's all I know. There's a lot of forgetting and a lot of pressing forward. So we just follow. So what's going on here is he's restoring his call. Let's see how much time we got. I'm trying to stop him at a rabbit trail. Um, well, it's interesting. It's fun. We'll see. So first time I ever heard God. I am months old in the Lord. Uh, I got saved after college, 22 years old. I was, you know, social chairman of my fraternity and played football. You do the math. Uh, that was my life. Now I'm saved. And uh, I have no, obviously now I'm a pastor. I have no training. I Keep this in mind. I've never even been in a youth group because I didn't get saved until I was 22. So, I'm months old in the Lord, and I'm walking around the neighborhood at night praying because I'm trying to figure out what to do about a specific situation. I'm asking God a specific question. God knows the question I'm asking. He knows the context of my question. He completely ignores it. Has he ever done that to you? (laughs) So I'm wandering around going, God, what do I do? What do I do? And I'd never heard God. Just, you know, you hear God in your head. I'd never heard God before. What do I do, God? What do I do? First thing he ever said to me, feed my sheep. What the heck does that mean? Now, I've been reading my Bible and praying. I go, didn't he say that to Peter? I have no idea what that means. I have no idea what that means. Two years later, he, I say, kind of tricks me into being a youth pastor because he didn't really. But he wasn't forthcoming with all the things I would need to know. Clearly, clearly I was not qualified for this job. So two years later, I'm a youth pastor. I've never been in a youth group. I've never taken a Bible class. I'm just reading my Bible and praying, and Jesus decides, let's just do this, and we'll do on-the-job training, right? Now, that wasn't even on my radar. 
but it was on God's radar. Feed my sheep. I, I didn't know what it meant. When it was two years later, or I even it would even cross my mind. And a, a year after that, if I hadn't known he told me to do it, I would have quit because I didn't know what I was doing. I started taking youth pastors lunch and go, how do you do this? So here I am, 36 years later, trying to figure out how to be a pastor. I think a few more years, I'm going to figure this out. <laughs> What's my point? My point is, uh, God is not afraid of calling us to stuff and doing on-the-job training. It's not because uh, I have awesomeness in pastoring. I really don't. It's because God is an awesome leader. And this is what he was trying to teach uh, the disciples. I didn't call you guys because you're awesome. I'm awesome. I'm an awesome leader. I just need you to follow me. Just, what's that to you? Follow me. What's that to you? Follow me. All right. Here we go. You with me? So, now you want to know it's Jesus. You don't just want to pick something and try and do it. Uh, he clearly made it happen. I didn't make it happen. I didn't, I didn't pursue it, not because I was so wise to know, well, I'm not going to pursue this, but because literally I had no idea what he was talking about. That's why I didn't pursue it. I was just teaching high school. So, God wants to reaffirm or to affirm your calling. Amen? All right, let's get to the fun part here. Uh, most of you uh, may be aware of this, or a lot of you may be aware of this. There's more going on here, um, and this is the where he meets Peter, where he is thing. Um, and he, here's what happens. Uh, if you look at the Greek, uh, and this is where it gets interesting, um, there's a couple Greek words for love. There's several, but the, there's two that are most common in the Bible that we're going to talk about. Agape and phileo, and the roots of them. Philadelphia is a root of phileo, city of brotherly love. Um, here's uh, what happens when Jesus is saying this. It's not just, do you love me? Yes, I love you. you love me? Yes, I love you. you love me? Yes, I love you. It's, Peter, do you agape me more than these? And uh, Peter says back, Lord, I phileo you. He uses a different word. Peter, do you agape me? Lord, I phileo you. Peter, do you phileo me? Lord, do you know all things? You know I phileo you. So God meets Peter where he is. He, he tries agape twice and then changes to phileo. Now, we've got to find some balance here because some people, you can, you can make too much out of this or you can blow this off. And it's actually probably somewhere in between. Uh, but uh, what's going on is this. Agape, you've probably been told, means unconditional love or godlike love. The truth is probably no one alive really knows what agape means. We know it means love, and we know maybe it means a higher degree of love, but everything else is just people trying to figure out what it means 2,000 years removed from biblical Greek, okay? Um, so we do know phileo means familial love or brotherly love or friendship love, all right? And so it seems like there's a degree thing going on. Now, some people go too far the other way and say that they're basically synonyms, and the reason for this is, um, if you say agape is only God kind of love, well, that doesn't work because, for example, in John 3, where it says um, men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, it uses agape. So clearly, agape can work for loving darkness, which is not God kind of love. 
right? Uh, it might mean extreme love. Men really love darkness because their deeds are evil. Um, but you understand what I'm saying. And they do get used interchangeably. Most of the time, when Jesus refers to the Father loving Jesus, he uses agape. Sometimes, at least once, I'm aware of, he uses phileo. God loves him like a brother. Father to Jesus. And so, that kind of elevates that one, doesn't it? Same thing with um, John. When John calls himself the disciple who Jesus loves a lot, <laughs> most of the time it's agape. One time it's phileo. Kind of elevates it. And so, you can't just go agape is a lot higher than phileo and all that. But you also can't just go there synonyms and that, and that Jesus just changed the word for no reason. He clearly changed the word. All right? So what I want you to see is, uh, even though we don't probably understand the subtle differences between the two um, 2,000 years later, it's pretty clear that Peter, or that Jesus is meeting Peter where he is. And what I want us to get out of that is that our weak love doesn't disqualify us for a calling in God. Peter, uh, each time he reaffirmed his calling, didn't he? Peter's love was weaker than he thought, wasn't it? It didn't bother Jesus. So if you're thinking, well, uh, I, I know he says um, I need to love like Jesus loves, but that ain't in me. I, I got people I'm having a hard time even liking. Jesus goes, that's okay. I'll meet you where you are. I'll take your weak love. But let's just not stay there. Let's move forward. I refer you back to what I told you in the beginning. Learning to love is a process. You are not going to start at full on, I love people like Jesus loves people love. You're not going to start there. The apostles did not start there. But revelation, response, expression, repeat. And so he's just, I think, meeting Peter where he is and saying, all right, that level of love will do. I'll take that. Go ahead, feed my sheep, and we'll work on it. And he does work on it. And he does one other thing, which I think is so cool. Verses 18 and 19. He says, most assured now, he's just done the three love things with Peter, right? Peter, remember why Peter stumbled? Peter said, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus goes, no, you're really not. You're going to deny me three times, right? Peter wanted to die for Jesus. He wanted to be the man, right? So listen to what Jesus tells him after he's restored. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. And we had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And we know from history that Peter was crucified like Jesus. Not exactly like Jesus. Peter said uh, to the Roman guards, because Peter's always in charge, because he's a leader, right? So they're taking Peter to be crucified. And he, he says to the guards, what's going on? Crucifixion? Okay, but here's the deal. It needs to be upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. And they go, no, this is the way we do it. And he goes, no, 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 upside down. It's my crucifixion. We're doing it this way, right? And they did. 
Now, I don't know if it actually went down like that. I wasn't there. But that's how I imagine it. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down, which sounds, you know, horrendous. But here's the thing. It's a do-over prophecy. What was Jesus' first prophecy? God, I'm going to die for you. And his prophecy was, no, you're not. You're going to deny me three times. Now, he's going, God, I don't, I don't, I don't love you like I thought I love you. Right? He's leaning. He's humble. And Jesus goes, yeah, but you know what? You're going to learn to. You're going to learn, lay down love, lay down life, love, and you're going to die for me. That's your prophecy, Peter. You're going to do it. The thing you couldn't do, you're going to do. And Peter's excited about this. Now, how many of you, if you're called to be a martyr for Jesus, want a word right now, know that in advance? Yeah, me neither. No one wants to know that in advance. But Peter does. This is Peter's heart's desire. I want to be bold for Jesus. I want to, and he gets a do-over prophecy. You will learn, lay down life love. You get what's going on here. Jesus is really saying, Peter, you didn't love me enough to die for me, but you will. You'll learn to. You'll learn to love me like this. You'll actually die for me. Now, all we're called to do is learn him to love him enough to lay down our lives. That might mean death. That might mean just being nice to people that are mean to us. Right? But that's what we're learning. So, I want to finish up with this. Um, let's look at, and this is on the other page of your notes, let's look at the end of John and Peter's life from the beginning. Let's start with John. John, as you recall, uh, James and John were called sons of thunder because they wanted to call down lightning on a Samaritan village and burn everybody up. So this was their starting point on loving like Jesus loved. Right? Have you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? You almost want to say, dude, really we get it. Would you quit telling us to love one another? You've said it like 87 times now, John. Seriously, can you talk about anything else? And it doesn't appear you can that's all he talks about in those three letters. That's how different he was at the end of his life. He learned love. Peter. Now, we know how Peter started. He thought he had it together, but turns out he didn't. So, uh, Second Peter, we know that Second Peter is written right before Peter died because he tells us in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, I'm I know I'm fixing to, he says, put off this tent, euphemism. He says, I know I'm fixing to die just like Jesus promised me I would. He actually references, you know, Jesus told me this. He's already going back to his John 21 prophecy. I know that prophecy that Jesus gave me is fixing to be fulfilled. I'm going to die. And here's what I want you to know before I die. You ready? So the first seven verses of Second Peter, he says this. This is Lori's current favorite verse. She's praying into it regularly. I love it. I memorized it. It's a good verse. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Peter goes, here's what I want you to know. He's already given you everything you need to live a godly life. Lean on him. He's already given you everything you need. So, all right, we just take that, right? No, no, no. Next thing he says, therefore, because he's given you everything you need, be diligent. Well, if I've already got it, what do I need to be diligent? Well, because you've got to lay hold of it. 
I mean, it's in, it's in the spirit. You got to get it. You got to lay hold of it. He talks about it's, uh, how he's given us everything you need through promises in the word. Through these exceedingly great promises. You got to go get those things. Well, how do I do that? He goes, well, add to your faith these seven things. He says, if you add to your faith these seven things, he goes on to say, you, you'll never stumble. Now, I'm not there yet. I know you probably wish I was, uh, but I'm not to the never stumble part. He goes, if you add these seven things, you'll never stumble. So, well, let's look at these things. He says, as to your faith, virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness. There's two left. Anybody know what they are? Philadelphia, brotherly kindness, agape, love. Look at the two he saved for last. And apparently, Peter understands the distinction between the two, phileo and agape. He goes, and the very toughest ones are at the end. Brotherly kindness, love. Get to that point, you'll never stumble. So I go, okay, here we go. This is it. This is what we're called to this is the point of John 21 that Jesus wants us to be confident in our calling and in his love for us. He wants us to move forward in confidence, leaning on him, not in ourselves, leaning on him. It is okay that you are weak in your love for him or your love for others. Just let him work on it. His answer to all of us is still, just follow me. I, let's keep moving forward. I want to talk about what's ahead of you. Let's walk in that. Isn't it amazing to think, look at the change in Peter and John and think that could be me. That blows my mind because part of me doesn't really believe I can learn to love like that. Right? You with me? But I look at Peter and I look at John and I go, maybe a knucklehead can learn to love like that. Let's go after it. Who wants to learn to love like that? That's a good, good response. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you are an amazing leader, that you lead us in love, that you accept us where we are, that you think about our future, that you draw us after you. Lord, we just say, you saw the hands. We just say this morning, we want to learn to love like you. So, Lord, let us just get better. Let us just get better. Lord, help us to recognize the challenges to loving. Lord, help us to recognize where our self-confidence needs to be replaced with leaning. And, Lord, most of all, uh, we want to go in the right order in the process. Give us a greater revelation of the love that's in the Godhead, the love that the Father has for the Son and the Son for the Father and both for us. Give us revelation of the width and length and depth and height of your love that passes knowledge that never ends. Lord, take us deeper. Lord, we pray for worship experiences here on Sunday mornings, in house churches, just at home, when we're praying, reading the word, where we pray for experiences of your love. Lord, fill us with your love. We have to have a revelation of 
how much you love us so that we can be changed like you did Peter and John. as best we know how, whatever the word means to each of us. We just say we love you. We love you, Father. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Holy Spirit. And we want to love you more.